Lord, we just thank you for this opportunity to come and worship you in the word. We ask you to bless this time and show us what you would want us to learn from this scripture and help us to see you in all that goes on. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Zechariah chapter 5. Uh, last week was Thanksgiving. The week before, I decided not to do this because I wasn't ready to do it. Um, I've had a lot of struggle with this particular chapter. Um, I've, I read through it the first time, and I had what I thought it meant, and I, and I looked over different commentaries and listened to different sermons from other people, and none of them agreed with me. Uh, which makes me have to think twice about it when the guys that I go to normally to, to look things up are in total disagreement. Um, so I've done a lot of research on this one, and I'm going to go with what I believed in the first place. <laughs> All right. So I finally found a book that actually said something similar to what I believe. So <laughs> um, in this, just so you have a knowledge of what most people say about it, they see this chapter as two distinct visions that are all about judgment. I see this as one continued vision with two different parts of the vision, one that's going to be extremely full of judgment and the other one full of grace and a prophecy. So you can take what I say for what it's worth. 50, you know, 40 year, uh, 50 years worth of study, it's what it's worth, <laughs> okay? Uh, but know that if you disagree with me, I'm not going to have a problem. You're in great company. <laughs> so, verse 1. Then I turned and lifted up my eyes and looked, and behold, a flames roll. And he said unto me, the angel that's been near him, see you? And I answered, uh, what see you? And, he, and I answered, I see a flying roll. The length thereof is 20 cubits and the breadth thereof is 20 cubits. Said unto me, This is the curse that goes forth over the face of the whole earth, for everyone that steals shall be cut off as on this side according to it, and everyone on that sweareth shall be cut off as on the other side according to it. And I will bring it forth, saith the Lord of hosts, and it shall enter into the house of the thief, and in, into the house of him that swears falsely by my name, and it shall remain in the midst of his house, and shall consume it with the timber thereof and the stone thereof. And the, then the angel that talked with me went forth and said unto me, Lift thou your eyes and see what this is that goes forth. And I say, What is it? And he said, It is an ephod that goes forth. And he said, Moreover, this is their resemblance through all the earth. And behold, there, there was lifted up a talent of lead, and this, is a, and this is a woman that sits in the midst of the ephod. And he said, This is wickedness. And he cast it into the midst of the ephah, and he cast the weight of lead upon the mouth thereof. Then I lifted up my eyes and looked, and beheld, there came two women, and the wings was in their, the wind was in their wings, for they had wings like the wings of a stork, and they lifted up the ephah between the earth and the heaven. Then said I to the angel that talked to me, where do they go? Where do they bear this ephah? And he said unto me, to build it a house in the land of Shinar, where it shall be established and set there upon her own base. All right. Very interesting stories as we look at this. <laughs> um, so we want to look at this and say, what are we seeing as we go through this? And there are some symbols that we know, and there are some other things that we're going to look at as we go through this. Uh, he says, I lifted up and I looked, and behold, a flying roll, or literally scroll. So he saw a scroll up in the air 
being out there. And he says, he says, and the angel said, what do you see? And he says, I see a roll, a, a scroll. The length is 20 cubits and the breadth is 10 cubits. This is 30 feet by 15. That's a pretty good sized scroll. It just happens to be the same size as the porch in front of the tabernacle that Solomon built, according to 1 Kings chapter 6. And I'll read that real quick, just so we can remember. What was it again, 1 Kings? 1 Kings chapter 6, uh, starting at verse 1. And it came to pass in the 480th day after the children of Israel were come out of the land of Egypt on the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel in the month of Ziph, when the second month, and he began to build the house of the Lord, and the house which the king Solomon built for the Lord, the length thereof was 60, 60 cubits, and the breadth thereof 20 cubits, and the height thereof 30 cubits, and the porch before the temple of the house, 20 cubits was the length thereof, according to the breadth of the house, and 10 cubits was it according to the breadth of the breadth. So this scroll is the same size as the porch. And many of the commentators make a big deal out of this, and I can understand why they are. That porch was where the people made sacrifices. All right? The area in front of the tabernacle, or the tent, or, well, the tabernacle, and later the temple, was where they would set up the tables for the animals to be slaughtered. So we see here the idea of the law. All right? And this very clearly becomes the picture of the law. And it matches the, the law in front of the, of the uh, tabernacle or the temple. The same size as the, is, so pictures the law, because that is that area where the sacrifices were made to, for forgiveness for the law. Um, we covered all of, all of this when we talked about the, ta the tabernacle. We talked about how the sacrifices were made. They entered into the holy place, and we talked about the different colors of the, of the tent and everything, and all about how it represented the sin and then perfection. Uh, it starts out with black, goes to red for the blood, goes to white, then goes to blue, and then the blue, the, the gold, which represents our royalty and our and the fact that God is deity. So we, we talked all about that long ago, <laughs> long before you were here too. <laughs> yeah, we were doing this way back in Leviticus. So long. We've reviewed it a few times. Uh, so we see here he's seeing the law between God. And man. And this is what the law was designed for. The law was not designed to be given to us so that we could live it and, and please God. God's purpose of the law was to show us that we're sinners. Plain and simple. He, shows, he gave us the law so that we would know that we are not good. And this is the, what we find when we look at the, the gospel starts with the idea of the bad news. The bad news is that we are sinners and we deserve hell. The law stands between God and man because it is that layer that says you are not perfect. And the more we look at the law, the more we realize <laughs> that we're not perfect. Even when we walk with God for a long period of time, we realize even more and more as we get, draw closer to him how imperfect we are. Because we have trouble... And I love this, what he's saying, even in stealing and speaking truth or swearing. Now, God's standard for truth is a whole truth. 
and nothing but the truth, so help me God, that, we're, that we swear to tell in court. And God makes it very clear that if we tell part of the truth, we've lied. But yet, in our flesh, we kind of like the lawyers. If you've ever been in court, the lawyers will tell you, you answer just the question that's asked and nothing more. So they follow the truth by the world's point of view. If you weren't asked, don't tell tell and you haven't lied. That's the world's point of view. God's point of view is, he even said, if you see something and don't speak out, whether you're asked or not, you have lied. You don't tell all of what you know, you've lied. I actually had, a, had one of my, a lawyer represented me one time for, for, for a ticket, and he told me not to come to court <laughs> because he didn't want me telling the whole truth because I told him that I would tell the truth. Yeah. And he goes, well, no, you've told me what it is. You've told me the truth. You don't, you don't come. I you know, lawyer told me that. Uh, so, but this is the way our legal system works and how most people work. Kids will defend themselves, and we might even defend. Well, I didn't exactly lie. You didn't ask me. (laughs) You know, I told you unto my friends, you didn't ask me what we were doing. (laughs) You know, that is God's standard. God's standards are so much higher than our standards that the more we walk with them, the more we realize that we don't meet his standards. And this is what this is all about. God is saying, the law is between me and you. You are guilty. To the point where he says, for those who steal. Now, this is an interesting thing, because a lot of people will go, well, I've never stolen anything in my life. Well, most everybody has stolen something. I can tell you as a manager, I know that most people have stolen time from their, work, from their worker by not working when they're being paid to work. That's, that's stealing. Taking the pens, you know, the, from, the, from, the, from the business, you know, is stealing. You know, we've all taken little things. You know, we might not be outright thieves as far as the world's concerned, but God actually picks two of the sins that just about everybody has committed. And then you take things to Jesus' level where he says, if you've been angry with a brother without righteous cause, you've committed murder. If you've looked at somebody with lust in your heart, you've committed adultery and fornication. And so we look at God's standard saying, uh, gee, I can't, <laughs> I can't measure up. And this is the whole point of this. God is saying we cannot measure up. But the good news that I love about this particular book of Zechariah is that it's all, the whole theme of the book is God's grace. God's grace. In chapter 3, God dresses the high priest Joshua with good garments while Satan's standing next to him and says, okay, what was your problem? In chapter 4, he says the same thing. He brings out his grace. This book is a picture of God's grace, which is why I had so much trouble trying to figure out two visions, because I, I initially saw two visions, and I'm going, I don't understand. I don't, I'm not seeing the grace in this chapter. And one of the things that we need to remember, and I, we say this all the time, 
is context. What is the context of a, the, the verses in a chapter? But we also have to look at the context within a book. And one of the problems that you do have when you do what I do through exegetical studies, sometimes we lose the context of the book. And I'm looking at this and I'm going, where's the grace? <laughs> Where is the grace that has been the context of this whole book? And very important that we keep the context of a book in mind, which is one of the reasons I start every new book with the whole, here's the outline, here's the, here's the direction this book is taking so that we can remember to stay within the context of the whole book. And you all know that I'm big on context. You ask me a Bible question, the very first thing I do is we look at the context of it. When I read it out loud, you, you usually will say, just like I say, oh, it's obvious what that meant. You know, too often we take things out of context and then try to figure out what it means. And that's a very dangerous thing. I mean, we may get a nice little teaching out of a verse out of context, but we've got to take it in context. In Isaiah 53, it says, by his stripes we are healed. And so many people will go, well, see, that means everybody's supposed to be healed of physical ailments. And I say, well, that's a nice view, but let's read that verse in context. And it's all about our spiritual uh, sickness. And then it comes, by his stripes we are healed, and goes on with, from that. So we need to be able to say, well, that's a wonderful thing. And yes, God wants to heal people, but it's not Jesus' stripes that heal us physically. That's God's mercy and his grace that heals us physically. Our spiritual healing was taken because Jesus died for our spiritual condition of sin. And he took the punishment. The Bible in, in the New Testament tells us that Jesus was our propitiation for our sin. Now that's a very big word, and if you don't know what it means, you don't catch the whole meaning of it. But what that means is he took the entire anger of God towards sin upon himself. All right. Now propitiation means all of that. That long sentence that I made is what propitiation means. But because nobody knows what propitiation means, we should be reading, and Jesus took the entire anger of God upon himself so that people understand what happened at Calvary. At Calvary, Jesus became sin, and God the Father put all of his anger, all of the punishment for sin upon Jesus, which is why the unforgivable sin is to reject Jesus Christ. At the white throne judgment, people are going to be asked one question. What did you do with Jesus? And if they're standing at the white throne judgment, they've rejected him. And that is going to be the thing that's going to anger God so much. I poured all my anger on my son so that you could be forgiven and you rejected it. And then they will be sent into hell. Now, does hell have multiple levels of punishment? We're not going to get into that. It's a possibility. It's been taught over the years. But sin has been dealt with, so I don't really believe so. There's only one thing that's sending them to hell, and that is rejecting Jesus Christ. The same thing for us. Is there different levels of heaven? No, but there are rewards in heaven. So they would, what does that mean to have a reward in heaven? I have no idea. All I know is in this human body where I have greed and, 
and selfish desires. I want as many rewards as I can get so that I can stand out in a crowd. What does a reward mean in heaven? I don't have that selfish greed, greed in me anymore, but it may still mean that I have a higher position. I don't know. I can't judge what it means because everything I can judge by is tainted by this world. So we have no idea what it means to get a reward in heaven. All we know is that there are rewards. We might be the lowest. <laughs> well, Jesus said that you know, the servant, you know, that the servant will be, be, the first will be last and the last will be first. So when we're in heaven, there seems to be some kind of ranking system that Jesus tacitly said that we had. Now, what that means, I don't know. Will we still be servants in heaven? Probably. Because that's God's heart is to serve. I really do believe that we'll be teaching in heaven. There will be some people in heaven that got there by the skin of their teeth. They just barely got saved, never grew, and they will spend all of eternity learning. Somebody is going to learn, have to, have to learn them, <laughs> have to teach them. <laughs> and, you know, for, for all of eternity, you know, that I really believe because one of the greatest things in this world is to learn. I am not one, and you guys know that I'm not one to believe that when we get to heaven, God's just instantly going to teach us everything that there is to know. There would be nothing else to do in heaven. It would be a very boring existence to know everything. If you want to die quickly in this world, just vegetate out and don't study and don't learn. And this happens to a lot of older people. They retire and just sit around watching TV and, and vegetate and, and quit learning. And they start literally dying. So to me, because it is such an important thing down here, I really foresee that it will be an important thing in heaven that we will spend eternity learning. And if for some reason we run out of, God runs out of things to teach us, he'll just create more stuff. <laughs> you know, oh, we caught, oh, they've all caught up with this. Let's create some more stuff and give them something else to learn. You know, he is infinite. He is infinite. We will never know everything that God knows ever. Because if we did, we'd be God. We will never know everything that he knows because he is infinitely knowledgeable. Which means if we think we get there, he just has more out there he hasn't taught us yet. Yeah. And this is the beauty of this. What does it mean to, to have all these gifts? We don't know, but God says there's gifts. He says there's rewards. They mean something. What they mean, I have no idea. But you know what? Just to be in heaven is a better, better than the alternative. To be the lowest, whatever the lowest position in, in heaven is, is a whole lot better than the alternative of spend, spending eternity in hell. So we look forward to it. And here God is showing the law is coming between him. The law will bring judgment and conviction into people's hearts. And for those of us who know Jesus, we know what conviction, and conviction is all about because we can't do anything wrong without being convicted. Even those who are lost get, you know, when they get ready to be saved, get to the point where they're getting convicted. And the law brings in that conviction. For the lost, they will try to do one of two things. They will try to hide in some sin, usually, <laughs> or repent. And that's what it's all about, Re hide or repent. And here he's saying, they're going to hide in their houses. <laughs> And this law brings in conviction 
So God says that this law will totally even destroy their houses. And here we're looking at why do we go into houses? We go into houses for protection and for the strength that the house is going to bring us. God will bring down the house of sin around people eventually. They will build up. They will think they're all, they're all secure. We've, I've got everything. I've, I've got what I want, and God will tear it down. Sin will always tear down all of our defenses. The only good defense that we have is Jesus Christ. He says, I am a strong shelter. I am your fortress. I am your shield. I am, I am your buckler. He says, hide in me. He is a house that will not fall apart. But when sin attacks a house, it eventually falls. When the spirit comes in contact with that house, it eventually falls. And we've all heard the time, my, my house of cards finally fell down. It didn't seem like a house of cards until it fell down. <laughs> you know, before that, you thought, oh, I've got everything all put together. I've got my fill, fill in the blank of your sin that you're filling. You know, I'm at the top of the company. I've got more money than I need. I've got a family. I've, you know, I've got a great job. Whatever it is that you're filling in, my alcohol, my drugs, whatever it is you're filling in there, okay, I'm, I'm there. I'm arrived. I'm, I'm protected. And God works it out and basically puts an earthquake underneath your house and shatters it. And here we are, the law draws. And this is why for evangelism, the law is our best tool to use. You know, just start with the Ten Commandments. You don't even have to start at the beginning where you shall have no other, no other gods before me, because we as Christians know that it's easy to put another, anything in that place as God. But the world doesn't understand that, so we don't really need to cover that one. We come down to the real easy ones. Have you ever told a lie? You know, it's fun talking to people who, you know, and who think they're good. Have you ever told a lie? Well, yeah, I've told a couple lies in my lifetime. <laughs> you know, I've had, it, I've had one or two people tell me, no, I've never told, me a li told a lie, and I'm going, you're lying right now. <laughs> okay, you know that you have told lies. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, then you go, have you ever stolen anything yeah, you know hard. and you if you you can go through and say have you ever have committed adultery?" well no well Jesus said that if you've lusted after somebody you have uh -oh. you know well yeah <laughs> you know have you ever committed murder well no I've never committed well, Jesus said if you've been angry at somebody for no reason you've committed murder you know and most of us had plenty of times when we get angry I, I get angry quite frequently just driving home from work <laughs> All those dumb truckers that get in my way on, on that, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that road, you know, and go 15 miles an hour next to another truck going 14 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, uh, but you know the one that really gets people and they never even think about? You shall not covet. <laughs> covet is wanting anything that doesn't belong to you to the, to the point where you would be willing to take it. Okay, how, you know, we have an entire industry in America that's built on coveting. Yeah. It's called advertising. Yeah. You, you didn't know that you didn't, that you really needed something until, the, 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 until you watched the commercial telling you about how much you needed it. And then sometimes you actually buy in that you needed it. I have a dumb phone still. But all these little things that we do show us that how sinful we really are. And then 
we become a Christian and we start walking with God and we, he starts drawing us closer and closer to him and we see what perfection really is and then we start saying, uh, God, you were right. I am deceitfully wicked and my heart is so awful no one can know it. God, how can you even look at me? And he goes, because I'm not looking at you. I'm looking at my son. This is the beauty of it. God sees us through Jesus Christ's righteousness when we're saved. And he sees nothing but perfection. And we've talked about this so many times, but it is great that God sees us as perfect. Because if he didn't, he wouldn't have anything to do with us. Because he's holy and can't. So he sees people one of two ways. Perfect through the righteousness of Jesus Christ because they're saved. Or walking around in their own stinky, filthy rag righteousness, which he says is filthy rags. You know, one of two ways. This is when Jesus talked about the marriage supper for the prince where they called in and they gave the clothing to the people. And he found the one man who refused to wear the clothing provided. And he said, why aren't you wearing the clothes that I provided? And he said, drag him out and throw him into the lake of fire where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why? Because he didn't accept the gift of righteousness. Everybody standing at the white throne judgment will not be standing in sin. Jesus covered the sin. They'll be standing in their own righteous rags. And I can almost picture it. They think they're good and they think they've got everything all put together because they're, they've done human good things. And I can just picture them saying, God, you just look how good I am as they look down to themselves and see stinky rags on them and realize that they are not clothed very well for being in court. One of the first things that's done in courtrooms by, is to, for the, the lawyers will usually change the clothes of the, the person being charged to make them look presentable. Now, the last thing you want to do, number one, is be dressed up in jeans or sweatshirt, which is better than being dressed in the prison clothes. All right. So you at least want gene, you, know, you want something other than that, but that's still nothing compared to how they want you to appear to the judge. They want you to appear to the judge as a upstanding, righteous, you know, good person, you know, with, with nice clothes on. People are going to stand at white throne judgment thinking, I, I got it made. My, my sins aren't here. And they're going to look down and realize that God sees their righteousness totally different than they do. And this is all of what's going on in this first part. The, the curse, the sin that the law brings on us to show us that we are sinners. We go into the second half. And he says, he, the angel said, look up and what do you see? And, he, and what do you see? And he goes first and he goes, what is it? He says, it's an ephah. Now I know everybody in this room knows what an ephah is. An ephah, an ephah is a great big basket. It's a measurement. It's a measuring basket. It's equivalent to, uh, for us, four bushels. Yeah. It's a basket. It's used for measuring dry goods. Oh. Ifa, which is different. Um, so it's a great big basket. The size of this basket is equivalent to about four bushels of, of stuff. And if you don't know what four bushels are, it's about 153 gallons. This is a big basket. About 153 gallons. Yeah, if you, in, liquid, in liquid size. 
Uh, I looked up bushel and I wanted to see how many pounds the bushel was and it depended on what you filled it with. If you fill a bushel with ears of corn, it's only like 40 pounds. If you fill it with rice, which is very tight and compact, it's like 75 pounds. Because it's a dry measurement, it's a dry measurement thing, and it's a, you just keep filling it until it's full. So if you've got great big bulky stuff, it's light. If you have small, dense stuff, it's very heavy. But just, so if you've ever dealt with the farm and you know it's about four bushels, it's a big, <laughs> It's a big basket. So it's a basket that weighs stuff. That measures stuff. That measures stuff. Right. It'd be like a measuring cup. Yeah. Okay. Except it's a real big measuring cup. <laughs> a, six, a four bushel or 153 gallons of measurement. It's so. the size of a Volkswagen. Yeah. It would probably be pretty close. It's, uh, I mean, it's a, bushel, a bushel sits about this high, and it's about three or four feet across so you you're talking four bushels you're talking about a pretty good basket all right um, and he's looking at this basket and it was covered with a cover of a talent of lead now these are terms that everybody knows I know you know what a talent is it's about 125 pounds so it has a lid over the top of this basket 125 pound lid made out of lead all right, and inside this lead, this basket underneath the lead, is a woman. Okay, uh, very interesting picture. <laughs> and the angel tells him that he says that inside in verse eight he says, "This is wickedness. This woman is representing wickedness inside the basket, being contained." with a heavy cover over it so that the wickedness could not get out. And this is kind of an interesting picture. We're trying to figure out what exactly is going on here. And then we see two other women that have wings like storks. Now, storks' wings are very large, powerful wings. And it says the wind lifts them up between heaven and earth. We see when Jesus dies for our sins, the sin is put into the container and lifted up between heaven and earth. But it's off of earth, but it's not totally removed. The beauty of God's grace to us is he lifts our sin off of us. Do you remember when you got saved and you had the weight of your sin lifted off of you? Now, the older you are, the more you know that sin was lifted off of you when you finally realize it. The younger we realize that we had sin, but we didn't have as much to, and it wasn't as bearing down. If you read the book Pilgrim's Progress, the, the, na the main character's name is Christian. He starts reading the Bible, and he gets weighted down when he starts realizing his sin. And it's, the sin gets so heavy that it literally bows him down. And, and I have seen this happen when people get saved... It's an amazing thing when somebody gets saved and you see sin lifted off of them. And everything about them just lightens up. Their face shines. There's a glow about them. It is fun to see somebody who's newly saved and you kind of just look at them and, and you go, something changed. <laughs> and you know what it is, but you, I, at least I kind of know what it is, but I want to hear them tell me. 
you've changed. What, what happened? And I know what happened. I know that they met Christ and that they are a changed person. And it's a beautiful thing to see that. That doesn't mean they're going to be victorious and the perfect Christian, but you can tell, especially that, that right at the beginning, this person is committed to Christ. They are surrendered to him. There's a glow. There is a glow. Sometimes there's a glow. Sometimes it's just the lightning. Their shoulders aren't grouped anymore. There's a, there's a little, little bit of a smile on their face. The, 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 the smile is a full smile. Even if they're not fully smiling, you can see that they normally are smiling now. There's a difference. The sin has been lifted off the earth, us. <laughs> it hasn't gone completely. It's between the two. And he says, what are they going to do with this wickedness, with this sin? Because this is fascinating. Zephaniah, he's looking at him going, wickedness is being removed. What's, what's happening to it? And they, and he is told to build it a house in the land of Shinar, and it shall be established and set there on its own base. All right, Shinar. Most of your newer translations are translating it Babylon. It's not technically Babylon. It is the plane in which Babylon sits. Shinar. The first mention of Shinar in the Bible, and it's mentioned in several places, is in Genesis chapter 11. And in chapter 11, starting at verse 1, And the whole earth was one language and one speech. And it came to pass as they journeyed from the east, they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they built there. And they said to one another, Go, let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and slime for mortar. And they said, Go and let us build up a city and a tower whose top may reach into heaven that we may make a name for ourselves, lest we be scattered abroad upon the whole face of the earth. This was the Tower of Babel. This is where the Tower of Babel was built, the plain of Shinar. It is where Babylon is later going to be built. It is where Nebuchadnezzar built the 90-foot statue that Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego would not bow down to. This is an infamous area of the world. It is well known as Satan's home. So when then ten? Okay. Uh, Nimrod, Nimrod, there, yeah. We're just going to Nimrod, but that's good. Yeah, Nimrod was the first king of people in the world. He was trying to build one nation. Anybody that didn't follow his rule, he made a slave. He worshipped. 126 different gods. And most of those gods needed human sacrifices. So he was a brutal person trying to build a one world government with a one major religion that was not God, was not the one true God. In the Revelation, Babylon plays a major picture of the end times. 
The traditional way of looking at it is that Babylon represents Rome. And I understand, there's some verses that I understand why they pick Rome to be, that, be Babylon. I believe that Babylon is Babylon. Babylon has been Satan's city since the beginning of time. And when he builds his kingdom and a one world government, I fully expect it to be in the literal Babylon, not a metaphorical Babylon. Now, Rome will play a big part of it. Don't get me wrong. They'll play a big part, in the, especially the religious side. But I believe that the Babylon spoken about in, in most of, some places clearly symbolic, but most of it is literally Babylon. Because that has been Satan's seat of power. Just as God chose Jerusalem to be his seat of authority on earth, Satan has chosen Babylon, the Shinar Valley, to be his seat of power. And they're not far apart. <laughs> All right. Uh, now, can I prove that? Absolutely not. You know, and again, it's one of those things, if you don't agree with me, you're in great company. Most people think it's wrong. All right. So you're in great company if you don't agree with me. And I'm not going to argue with you. I just tell you what I believe and tell you why I believe it. <laughs> because Babylon has been the center of Satan's reigning from the very beginning. Nimrod was one of the first antichrists. Even though Jesus hadn't come about at that point, he is an antichrist trying to put the whole world under the authority of one person and one ruler under a religion that is not following God. And so he was one of the very first. You might go all the way back to Cain who killed his brother for not for not making the right, you know, because he made the right sacrifice when he didn't, but he wasn't trying to build a kingdom <laughs> at that time. Uh, but we look here that this wickedness is going to be taken to Shinar, the, the, the seat of Satan, to be established. In the end times, at the end of the, after the rapture of the church, we will be taken away. For seven years, Satan will have rule over this world. He still, many people will tell you he has all authority. He does not because he had all authority and totally what he wanted to do, he'd just kill everybody and nobody would have a chance to go to heaven after that. He will always have a leash. Now his leash gets a little longer during that period of time. And God gives him a lot more authority during that period of time. But he still has a leash. God says you can only go this far. Now it's a lot further than anybody wants him to go. And there is a point in Revelation where it says, and nobody will die. They will want to die. They'll be in so much pain they want to die. And God's going to say, no. You're not going to be able to die. Because... All of that pain is for one reason. The whole tribulation period is not God saying, how mean and awful can I be to people? It's, will they finally turn to me? Most won't. But it says the last opportunity where he comes in, because every time something bad happens, even in our day, why did God do this? Why did God let this happen? Everybody always blames God. They don't want to turn to him and worship him, but they want to blame him for everything that's happening. Even though it's their fault. You know, God, why did you, why did you let this accident happen when I was driving so drunk I couldn't even see, see in front of my eyes? And, you know, and, and, I, and I just don't understand why you let this thing happen. 
Well, uh, maybe because you were doing things that were really dumb <laughs> and it wasn't God. <laughs> you know, but this is what happens. There's going to be an established kingdom in the end days for seven years. Satan is going to get to rule this world. The church will no longer be here. This, this world is getting bad and the church is here saying what you're doing is wrong and we're slowing down much of what the world wants to do because they have to deal with the church. Imagine how bad things will get once the church is gone, once the church is gone and there is nobody saying what you're, doing is wrong. What, what you're doing is wrong. Don't do this. Don't, don't be doing this. Don't be doing that. Don't, don't be killing your children. Don't be killing the old people. Don't, don't be stealing. Don't be, do, you know, don't, you know, don't be sleeping around all the time. When the church is no longer here saying those things, this world is going to turn to the wickedness that people want to do. People want to do wrong because that is what we are. At our core, we are wicked. You know, all our righteousness is filthy rags. And God says, we are deceitfully wicked. Our heart is deceitfully wicked. Who can know it? And usually if you ask somebody, if you knew that you could get away with something and there was absolutely no way that you'd get caught, would you do it? Would you do it? And most people would honestly say, yes, I would. You know, you got so mad at that person if you knew there was absolutely no way that you'd ever get caught by anybody or suffer any consequences, you might just kill them. You know, if you knew that you could get away with it. Now, Christians will, will go, well, God will always know. You're right. God will always know and he will punish. But if we didn't have that block in our heart and somehow we thought we were strong enough, powerful enough that nobody would know or ever get caught to catch us, who knows what we would do? Oh, okay, yeah. Yeah, uh, Mount Carmel, wake, wake, up, wake up your God. He went, maybe he went on vacation, he yelled a little louder. <laughs> but this is the point that, that he's making. The sin has been removed, but it will come back. The wickedness will come back and, and come back with a vengeance during that period of time. It's still here. I mean, don't get me wrong, but imagine without the church what things will be like when Satan is in charge and he has turned everything. Right now he's turning everything on its, on its head. Good things are being called bad. Bad things are being called good. I read an article today that just made me sick because everything good was being represented as, as bad. And I'm going, who, who is writing this stuff? Who is... Why are people buying into this stuff? But it is the way the world is going. And the church isn't speaking out loud enough to say, this is wrong. We're, some are. The sad thing is there's some, some churches that don't say anything. You know, and they're not helping the matters any because then people look and go, well, th those churches over there don't have a problem with it. Why do you guys? Well, because we still believe God's word. They may be able to throw God's word away and say that they're a Christian. I don't know what they're following if they're not following God's word. But we're going to follow God's word. And the closer we get to the end times, the more that's going to make us look terrible. 
because more and more people are falling away. And this is the sad thing. There are so many people that name the name of Christ who aren't following Christ. They don't believe the Bible. They don't believe in Jesus. And yet they call themselves Christians. I do not know what they're believing. I am going to hold on to his word no matter what. Even if it makes me end up being intolerant and thrown into prison, I'm going to believe his word and follow it. Because it's all I have to hold on to. If his word is not true, then I have no reason to be a Christian. And this is very important, and I've said this over and over again. If there's any word in the Bible that is not absolutely true, then I have nothing to put my faith in. I might as well eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow I die because there's nothing else to hope in. Hope in. And even that does not have any hope. It's a very pessimistic way to live. Have as much fun as you can because you're going to die and it's all going to be over with at that time. And that's assuming that there's not an eternity to have to answer to. Now, I am glad that I get into the Word of God. This Sunday, we're going to be looking at one of the apparent contradictions in the Bible. And we're going to show you why it's not a contradiction. I like showing you the contradictions in the Bible and why they're not contradictions. So that you can defend yourself to those people who say the Bible's full of contradictions. And you all know exactly what I tell you to do. If they tell you there's a contradictions in the Bible, you ask them to show you one. Where? Show me one. And usually, well, there's lots of, no, no, I'm not saying lots of, show me one of them. And sometimes if they can't think of one, I give them some help. <laughs> I'll point out the four or five contradictions that they're going to try to point out and explain to them why they're not contradictions. And I'll go, okay, now you go find something else and you see if you can find one, but there aren't any contradictions. You know, I, again, I've only been studying for 50 years, so then I might have missed one somewhere. <laughs> I haven't found one. None of the commentators have found one. None of the, none of the real Christian teachers have ever found one. I don't think they're out there. But this is where we're at as we look at this. Eventually, the church is going to be taken out, and the world is going to have what they want or what they think they want. Freedom from rules. You know, but, you know, we, most of us have been there at some place where we thought we had some freedom from rules. We grew up as a kid. We chafed against all the rules of our parents. As teenagers, we chafe against the rules of our parents. And sometimes when we're older, we chafe against all the rules, and we try to abandon all the rules, and we find out, I wish I'd, I wish I'd have kept some of those rules. God, they weren't there to keep me from having, having from the fun. They were there to keep me from hurting myself. Or hurting someone else. Or, you know, well, most of us don't really care, especially when we live in the flesh. We don't care if we hurt somebody else. We care that we hurt ourselves. And the rules eventually will make us hurt. We may be sorry we hurt somebody else, but we're not... You know, that was just part of me doing what I wanted. You know, they, they were in my way. I had fun. They, you know, they got hurt. Oh, well. You know, they didn't move fast enough. They didn't get out of the way fast enough. They should have never trusted me in the first place. And, you know, because they should have known that I was going to use, use, use them and throw them away when I was done with them. And that's what a lot of people do with, with relationships. Get as much out of the relationship as you possibly can and throw them away for the next, next person to use up. Uh, but that's the world's way of doing it because we're looking at what satisfies me. And a relationship will never work if it's all about what satisfies me. 
I have to be reaching out and saying, I'm going to help somebody else. And this is why most marriages fall apart. Everybody gets, most of the people get into a marriage looking at, well, this person is going to meet all my needs. You know, well, no, but it is true. Isn't that why we, we enter in it? We think that this person is going to love me. They're going to take care of me. They're going to do whatever it is. You know, it might be from one person's side. This person is going to go out and they're going to do all the work. They're going to, they're going to get me a nice home. And there's going to be food on the table and, and nice things. The other one's looking for just everything being taken care of. You know, I, you know, the one who's out on the works looking that when I come home, my dinner's going to be ready, the house is going to be cleaned, and all these things. And both people come in with expectation that the other one's going to meet their needs, whatever those needs are. And those needs have been in flux for the last few years, but they're still, you go in expecting needs to be met. And when they're not met, you get out of the relationship if you're in the flesh. Oh, that one wasn't the right one. Let me try another one. You know, and this is the same thing. God says, I am, your marriage is for you to love one another. And this goes down to where we started with. We serve one another. My goal is to meet the needs of the other person. And if that person is doing their job, their goal is to meet my needs but I'm meeting their needs and we're both getting what we want because God's living God's way. The servant, the, the one who's going to rule in the long run is the one who's the servant of all. You get so much more from people and you don't, and when I say this, I want to be careful. It's not a way to get something out of somebody. If you're doing it for that reason, you're doing it wrong. But if you're honestly serving people because you want to serve them, you get so much back. And if you think about it, if you're serving a group of people, you get a lot of people serving you. You're just being kind and, and helpful of a lot of people, and then they, in turn, are being kind and helpful and serving a lot of people, but you happen to get lots of people serving you. So this is why the body of Christ is such a beautiful thing when it operates correctly. Every member of the body serving every member of the body. So that each, each member of the body has lots of people serving them and meeting their needs and helping them. Does that mean you're going to get everything handed to you on a silver platter? No, okay. but, but you still you get people that are caring for you, that are helping you, encouraging you. Because of all of this that's going on, the church being the body of Christ, and the body is a very beautiful picture of it because you think about this. If you cut your finger in your body, if you really know what the body does, the rest of the body pretty much shuts down the blood flow to the body, sends all the blood that it can to that cut area so that it can be healed and be fought for the diseases. And the rest of the body suffers for the hurt part of the body. The sad thing is the church doesn't usually act that way to the hurt members of the body. We oftentimes isolate them and make them feel bad because they've fallen, they're, they're hurt, instead of rushing to their aid and saying, okay, other things can stop while we help them and get them raised up and help. And help isn't always what we think it's going to be you know, when, we're, when we're hurt. You know, we, want, we want to get you know, a rush of, rush of all these things, but just somebody caring for you is going to be a big part of it. 
But you know, that is unfortunately what the church does so often to, to its members. What did you do? You're, you must deserve all this punishment that you're, that you're having. When somebody's down, they don't need to be judged. Normally when they're down, they already know that, they're, that they've done stupid things and that they deserve what they're getting. They don't need us to go pound them over the head with it. They need, let me help you up out of this mud. Let me get you some clean clothes. Let me get you, a, you know, some claws to wipe, you know, clean up with. Let's help you. We as body of Christ need to reach out and say, God loves you. How can we help you? And this is important for us to be able to do that because there's times we look at somebody and going, oh, they're terrible, they're awful, they must deserve what they're getting. We have to be careful with that attitude. We don't know why they're getting, we don't know what they've done, and they may not even deserve it. Just like Job. <laughs> Job didn't deserve it. Jo uh, jo Joseph didn't deserve what happened to him. Jesus didn't deserve what happened to him. But there's a plan in it. Our job is to just love somebody, show them God's love. God's love and his grace changes lives. Law will not change lives. Rules will not change lives. Now we need rules, we need the laws, don't get me wrong, but it doesn't change lives. If all I'm doing is being obedient because I must, then I'm really not being obedient. You know, I'm the little boy sitting in the corner, you know, you, you're making me sit down, but I'm still running in my mind. All right? And most of us are like that. All right, God, you said I can't do it, but man, you know, God, you know, if I just could, I'd really be out there doing whatever it is you're telling me not to. Ultimately, that's not obedience. God is wanting to change us from the inside out. He changes on the inside so that we start truly being obedient. God, I don't even want to do wrong. I didn't even need your law anymore, God, because I don't want to do this. The law is to keep us from doing wrong by force. Grace and love will get us to be obedient by desire. This sin and wickedness is brought up between heaven and, and earth, taken off of earth, us, human beings, but not totally removed. He didn't take it beyond, beyond heaven. It still stands out there. It's a problem. It's going to be established during the, millennia, during the uh, tribulation period, iniquity and wickedness. And then, at the white throne judgment, Satan, death, Hades, hell, will all be cast into the lake of fire. All evil all the evil desires, all the wickedness, Satan, all the, all the negative will be cast into the lake of fire. Death, hell, cast into the lake of fire. And, Jesus, and God will create a new heaven and new earth that's perfect where we get to rule with him. Now, I still haven't figured out who we're ruling over at that point in time. Might be the angels, that's one of the, one of the things. But we will rule with him for eternity. What a beautiful picture. But there's a lot of ugliness between now and then. And God has, just as was said, he has a plan. We don't always understand his plan. We don't always fully comprehend his plan. Matter of fact, if we did, we'd be in trouble because then God's plan wouldn't be God's plan. 
God's plan is always going to be higher than our thoughts, deeper than, our, deeper than anything we can understand. And I've said this over and over. If we could understand God, then God's not big enough. We would be God if we could understand all about God, and we never will understand God. For all of eternity, we will never understand God completely. We will understand him better because we will have our glorified body. We will, but we still won't ever fully understand him because he's God. He's always going to be infinitely better than us. In Christianity, our goal is not to become God. Now, in many religions, the goal is to become equal to God or one with God. Many cults have that same attitude, that our goal is to be equal to or like God. But that's the point, that's the point of almost most of the religions, is I'm going to be like God. Sounds just a little familiar with Satan? Yeah. I will be like the Most High because he is the, he is the head of all false religions. The goal is to be either worshiping him or to be like God, which is his desire. He doesn't care which way you're going. You're still going to lose, and he doesn't care which way you do it. His goal, and we've talked about this, is not that he is the king of hell. He is a prisoner of hell. He wants to hurt God as much as possible by taking as many of his precious creation away from God. Satan is a prisoner of hell. He is not the king of hell. And I always remember what you say when you see Satan. We're going to say, and you were Satan? Well, the Bible says that. Yeah. This is the one that made the nations quake? Yeah. You know, and that's going to be an amazing thing. You know, that makes us wonder what a Satan looked like. You know, yeah. yeah, we've said that, the Wizard of Oz. You know, don't look behind that curtain. <laughs> Uh, but basically, that is what Satan has been playing all this time. Don't look behind the curtain. Don't see me for who I am. See the projection that I am putting out, that I am this awful, mighty, great, great thing. He is going to be defeated. Death and hell and, and Satan will be cast into the lake of fire with everybody that he has tricked into following him. But he really knows he's going to be defeated, doesn't he? He knows that he will be because he knows that God never lies, but he somehow has tricked himself into thinking that somehow he will. He believes his lies so much that he actually believes it. It's the same thing when somebody gets wrapped up into a sinful lifestyle. I can get out of this sin anytime I want. I just don't yeah. want to. You know, I, I like being drunk out of my mind every night. I like being blasted out of my mind every night on drugs. I, I like finding a new person every, every night, every week to, to sleep with. I, I, I like, and we get to the place where we lie to ourselves. We know we don't like it. We know it's destructive. We do it anyway. But we've lied to ourselves so much that somehow we believe that if I just really tried hard enough, I can get out of it, and I think that's where Satan's at. He's lied to himself enough that somehow he knows that it's not going to happen, but somehow he believes that it will possibly happen if he just tries hard enough. And he's tried very hard over the centuries trying to destroy the Jewish people so the Messiah wouldn't be born. He tried to destroy the Messiah after he was born, after the church was... He's tried to get rid of the, the Jewish people so that they would not be around for the, for the tribulation period. Because if he could win in any one of those points... He could show that God does not know the future and therefore can be defeated. But God will not let him win ever. So because he can't win, 
he still keeps trying. You know, and we don't know his whole mind. We don't know how it is that he keeps trying to battle God. Because he knows the end. He knows the Bible very well because what did he use when he tempted Jesus? He used scripture. And Jesus responded back with scripture because Satan took the scriptures out of context. Satan, uh, uh, Satan took the scriptures out of context and Jesus pa passed back with, with scripture to say, no, this is what God says. This is why scriptures are important for us to memorize. So that when Satan attacks us, we come up with, God, you still care. You've got a plan. I know the thoughts I have toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace, not of, not of evil, to bring you to an expected end. What a great thing. When we're attacked, when God, doesn't, God doesn't know what he's doing, Jeremiah 29, 11. When Satan comes at us and says, your life is wasted, no, there's no plan on it. <laughs> God's got a plan. You know, if God really knew what you were going through, you know, there's no way this can be good. No temptation overtaken you, but such is common to man. But God is faithful, will not suffer you to be tempted above that which you are able. It will provide a way of escape. There is nothing, when people say, I just couldn't help myself, they're lying. God did never put us in a place where we couldn't get out. All things work together for good for those who are called according to the purpose of God. Do we truly believe these verses when we are in a tight spot? That is the purpose of the hard spots. For God will say, all right, do you truly believe I have a plan? Are you willing to wait and see my plan? Do you really believe that all things work together for good? How many people say, well, this is just so bad, and it's not you know, I can't see any good. Nothing can come good. God, then you're calling God a liar. This is why I try to say, when things seem bad, God still has a plan. When we get far enough down the road or we get to heaven, we're going to find out what God's purpose was in that trial. And as I've said, the most important thing is don't add for my good into that verse. It is for good. Oftentimes our suffering is so that others can watch us stay faithful to God. And by us staying faithful to God, it encourages them. Because they may look at us and say, I don't know how that person's walking, staying faithful with God with, with all that's going on in their life. And we just stand up and we walk with God and they're going, I'm encouraged. And it might just encourage them to come back to church or come back to God or stay faithful to God, depending on where they're at. Because God says it is for good. Ultimately, it's for my good. I'm going to get rewarded in heaven. So ultimately, it is for my good. But on earth, it's not necessarily for my good. It's maybe for somebody else's good. We're going to close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for your love and your care. We thank you for your grace that you died for us so that we could go to heaven and that you do not judge us according to our works, but you put the righteousness of Christ on us because Christ took the punishment for our sin. And we just thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. Listening friend, do you know where you'll go after you die? Without the gift of Jesus, it will be an eternity in hell without God. Good works will not get you there. For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. To spend eternity with God, we must recognize that we are sinners in need of Christ. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, 
And the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. To be assured eternal life, we simply talk to God, admit you are a sinner, and ask him for his free gift. You must mean the words to get the, to be answered. Jesus is waiting to hear your request. If you have asked him for eternal life, he has come into you and he will change you. Start reading the book of Ephesians and see what God says about your new life. After you understand the book of Ephesians, you can start reading the Gospel of John. Next, find a good Bible teaching church. Tell the pastor about your decision for God and be taught. If you contact us, we will send you a new believer booklet free of charge. Congratulations and grow in Christ. You can contact us by email at office at chloridebaptistchurch.com or by snail mail at P.O. Box 65, Chloride, Arizona, 86431. We are happy to help with your new life in Christ or even answering Bible questions. Again, congratulations on your decision for Christ.